0: Welcome to the Road Home Podcast with Ethan Nicktern. Join Ethan as he and his guests explore the Buddhist path as it relates to art, culture, activism, politics, Western psychology, and more. If you'd like to support Ethan's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Ethan.
1: Hi, everybody. This is Ethan Nickturn. Welcome to the Road Home Podcast. I'm excited for today's uh, episode and interview. I'm here with one of the people I really uh, like and admire their work. So uh, Dr. Judson Brewer, who is uh, a psychiatrist, one of one of the funnier psychiatrists in writing that I know. Um, he's a lecturer, um, teacher, uh, and author of two really great books. His first great book, The Craving Mind, uh, which I've Recommended to a bunch of different people and new book, which is very pandemic and post pandemic relevant, is Unwinding Anxiety. So, we're gonna, we said beforehand that we're gonna try to have a fun conversation about anxiety. So, let's see how that goes. So, Dr. Judd, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, I always like to hear people's uh, origin story, either with mindfulness or Dharma or the work they're doing. So, where does your origin story be, do? You, does it start earlier? If we talk about how you got into the work that you do, or your origin story with meditation, probably. Well, I guess
0: in this lifetime, <laughs> the uh, we can start with the meditation piece because it it actually related to my own anxiety. Uh, so. I, you know, at the end of college, I didn't even know that I was anxious. I thought that I had, um, and I write about this at the beginning of the Unwinding Anxiety book. I thought I had a, a, a bacterial infection that I'd picked up from backpacking, and I went to the student health at, at, the, at my university, and the doc said, "Oh, do you think it could be stress?" And I was like, "No way! No, I'm not stressed. I play the violin. I met, you know, I I uh, run. I play, you know, I'm vegetarian. Blah blah blah." And he's like, "Okay, <laughs> but." But that led me, that and some other stress led me to start meditating, actually, my first day of medical school. And I was doing that really just for my own stress relief and not planning to do any work with it from a professional standpoint. But, you know, fast forward uh, eight years, I finished up my MD-PhD program and found that my own, you know, my own practice and my own understanding of little that I had at that point of mindfulness was, you know, that the Buddhist psychology, you know, think about is the Buddha was talking the same language as my patients, you know, especially my patients with addictions, where they're talking about craving and clinging and all these things. And so when I started residency, it actually prompted me to become a psychiatrist. I was thinking, oh, wow, you know, there might be something useful here to translate. And I was learning a lot about my own mind. My own mind and my own life that was helping me decrease my stress. So I was thinking, well, maybe this would be a good thing to do to help other people. And long story short, I ended shifting my entire career from studying molecular biology and the, you know, the molecular mechanisms of how stress affects the immune system to developing mindfulness programs and studying them and even studying brain mechanisms of how mindfulness works. It's been a, it's been a winding road, but it's been just so fulfilling to be able to bring my own personal practice together with my professional life. And most importantly, to see, you know, to see some of this stuff actually help people, which is great. I I laugh because a lot of research doesn't always make it out into the public in terms of helping people.
1: Yeah. So so maybe we should jump in just because I think we're going to have a long conversation that I think is really, really extra relevant to people right now um, about anxiety. And you talked in the early part of your book that there's there's a kind of difficulty defining uh, or pinning down what anxiety is. So how, how would you define the experience of anxiety? Well, we can take a classic dictionary definition as a starting point, which is basically this, this
0: feeling of worry or nervousness or unease about an uncertain event or something or an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. And so I think that highlights some of these aspects that are both mental and physical. So it can be a feeling, you know, uh, for me, you know, it feels kind of tight and contracted and restless. Uh, But that feeling also is paired with mental, you can even think of these as mental behaviors. The worry, the feeling of worry can also be a mental, Or worry can also be a mental behavior where I worry about something. And so there's the the body and mind are really kind of playing off of each other in the sense of, you know, we feel anxious, so then we can get worried. And then that worry feeds back and makes us more (laughs) anxious. And then,
1: you know, we start
0: to spiral out of control.
1: So... Have you ever thought about where you would locate the de- definition of anxiety in the Buddhist teachings? I ha- I had some thoughts about this but like what how it might be defined in classic Buddhism or what it, what early Buddhist teachings it relates to?
0: That is such a great question. You know, I have not the one piece that I've that I've thought about in the last uh, fourteen milliseconds since you posed the question is the restless quality. So there's a restless quality, but that's kind of a cheap shot because, it, from my understanding, it underlies all unwholesome mind states. If, mm-hmm. I, if, I, if I remember correctly, so I'd be totally curious to hear what your thoughts are on that.
1: Yeah, my thought was, you know, there are these lists of the the types of dukkha or suffering, and they're either divided. Divided into three or eight in the classic teachings. And there's one that I think gets translated uh, frequently as all pervasive hmm. suffering. And the way I've heard it defined is just sort of the basic sense of uneasiness hmm. that you're trying to hold together a sense of self, you know, and you know that it's sort of some part of you knows it's not going to work. Um, ah. Oh, that makes so much sense. So can we keep out on that for a second? Yeah, please. Yeah. So
0: so this is so interesting. Oh, thank you for that connection. So that trying to make sense. You know, this is our so our um, the newest part of our brain helps us survive through thinking and planning and trying to project into the future. And then what it does is it tries to predict outcomes based on past experience. And basically it tries to uh, decrease, you can think of it as decreased uh, prediction error, like trying to predict exactly what's going to happen. And the more uncertainty there is, the harder it is to predict and the more anxious we get. But you can think of self in that way. <laughs> you know? The more we try to predict that self into the future, the more tightly we hold on to that. And the more we're trying to kind of cram these uncertainty, you know, these, basically these probabilities that we're, we're not going to really have control over into a box. And so in that sense, there's going to be that existential, you know, unease or dis-ease around not having a a stable self until we get comfortable with not having one. (laughs) Mm.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how does, um, I mean, I'm just wondering, like, do we want to talk about how, like, 2020, since we're now in 2021, and I, I feel like there were you know, for, for most people I know, you know, who who care about this sort of stuff, we're sort of in the same place or very differing degrees of maybe the same place on some political spectrum, you know, where there's COVID happening. And then there's also like, is American democracy going to fall happening? And And maybe we could just take COVID because it's the more kind of like, one of those threats feels a lot more visible. It might not be shared by all, but honestly, not everybody's worried about COVID either. That's um, so so there, and then we could yeah. we could
0: go to democracy and in, afterwards, yeah. Time.
1: So let's say it's like March 2020. You know, which I I um, I think you were on um, Dan Harris' 10 Percent Happier" podcast at that point too, and and you were also on to talk about the new book uh, more recently. But like so you're wondering if you need to buy like tons of bottled water. We still have in in our apartment, like nine big gallon bottles of of water. Remember when we thought like, you know, you had a friend of a friend who was in the military and said like stock up on toilet paper and water for at least three weeks. And you're wondering if your groceries, the packaging that they come in are going to kill you, you know, are going to kill your, your parents when you, you know, somehow pass it along to them. So like, how does that shift the, the normal experience of, am I going to be able to pay my rent? Am I going to be able to pay more, my mortgage? Do my friends really like me? Am I going to get the job? Like, are my kids going to be screwed because of the things that I'm doing to mess them up? Like, how does that change? How does a survival-level event with an invisible threat change the experience of anxiety?
0: Yeah, so the experience is largely the same. So maybe the magnitude increases to some degree based on the level of uncertainty. So if we go back to the beginning of the pandemic, when we were all, you know, I remember just like you're talking about, we were leaving any packages from the, you know, from Amazon or whatever outside for three days or something, you know, just because, you know, suddenly it was like anthrax or something. We just, cause we just didn't know, right. We didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, and so, that level of uncertainty just drives the anxiety level up. It's Mm. not that anxiety itself changes, but it's like, okay, there's a real level of, of uncertainty. There's that package outside my door. When is it safe to touch it? And the answer is, Nobody knows. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that happened for a while. It was really more recent, you know, that started getting toned down, just using that as an example, started getting toned down when people, there weren't major outbreaks at, you know, postal services or whatever, you know, where people were realizing, okay, this probably isn't a threat. And then the studies came out and they're like, no, this is not a problem at all. Stop spending, you know, stop wiping down every surface, you know, 40 times, Uh, you're wasting your time, put on your mask, you know, keep the mask (laughs) on, that's helpful, So that, there's like a, there's an immediate thing that we don't know something about. And basically, literally, we might be staring that package, staring at that package right now saying, I don't know. Whereas these other things, you know, whether it's politics, whether it's the economy, whether it's schooling, those are more vague threats. You know, it's like, oh, are my kids going to be screwed up because of the pandemic? Well, we won't know that for, <laughs> for a while. Hopefully they won't, right? <laughs> Hopefully for anybody listening, your kids are going to be fine. You know, it's it's, <laughs> uh, it's not the best thing in the world for development, but it's not the worst thing, you know? There, mm-hmm. there are many, many worse things. So we look at those things on a, on a kind of amortized time, time scale where we can worry, worry a little bit at a time, but it's not right in our face. And so when that uncertainty is right in our face, that's when it, the
1: magnitude goes way up. Mm-hmm. So so let's talk about uncertainty. Like, is that, that that's is that the key feature of of experiencing anxiety is that the, the person, the being is faced with uncertainty?
0: Yes, that's really the fundamental feature here. So if you think of while well, our brains largely are, survive, are survival oriented, right, they're designed to help us survive. So. You know, we've got these very primitive habit-forming brains that help us basically remember where food is, remember where danger is so that we can eat and not be eaten, right? That's the one-liner on the, the basic, you know, the, the very old survival brain. Later on top of that, this neocortex, literally new brain, helps us think and plan because our ancient ancestors didn't do so much thinking and planning. It was like every day they would go and collect food, whereas, you know, we have refrigerators, so we can be thinking about other things. So in that sense we still have some basic survival mechanisms such as fear right so for example <laughs> in these in modern times it seems like we've forgotten to look both ways before crossing the street because we have these weapons of mass distraction right our phones <laughs> so so we're we're all walking out into the street and like we see a car come at us and we almost get killed and we jump back onto the sidewalk and our brain says hey, put your phone away, you almost got killed. So we learn, oh, you know, I should look both ways before crossing the street, or we relearn that because we did learn that at some point in childhood, but some people seem to have forgotten that, you know, actually pedestrian accidents just (laughs) have gone up since the the, uh, cell phone has come out, um, or the smartphone in particular, not Mm. the cell phone as much. So so here, those basic survival mechanisms are still helping us survive by learning based on fear. But if you think of fear, when you add uncertainty to fear, right? So fear says, oh, car coming, get out of the way. Clear, unambiguous, no uncertainty. But package outside my front door, hmm, well, I don't know. So there could be some fear. And then we start spinning out on top of that where our brain says, well, Maybe I could go, I could pick it up tomorrow. Maybe it'll be safe the next day, maybe. And then our brain just starts going, I don't know. This is, and then we start to get anxious. So I think of this, think of fear, survival, plus uncertainty equals anxiety. That's where the anxiety comes in. And in fact, that doesn't help us survive at all because our thinking and planning brain starts to go offline when we get anxious.
1: Mm, mm. So, I mean, what, is there any, this is what I've been thinking is there any actual part of the the evolutionary system that, you know, the reptilian brain, the limbic system, the prefrontal cortex that actually helps us deal with uncertainty? Like, you know, I, I found myself having an interesting experience. I find in my social settings and when I'm working with students and things like that, like I often will lean towards narrating uncertainty towards the positive, like, here's, here's the good, like, here's how it could get like, Oh, look at this article, they're developing vaccines or like, you know, look, Trump is behind in the polls, except, you know, like, like, I like here's what this could be great. Like we all are having this like really formative experience for how interconnected we are. Like maybe the planet will become a better place after this. Like, is there, is that just me kind of, is that just like a positive toxic positivity way of working with anxiety or no no absolutely
0: not I think of well there there are forms of toxic positivity where we're not seeing things clearly Mm. but and this is what I love about the Buddhist teachings is it really you know Vipassana it's about seeing clearly so with uncertainty when we can see clearly that there is uncertainty that it it can actually help with survival so if you Mm. think of so when let's say for example with the food mechanism, right? When we're hungry, our stomach rumbles and urges us to go get food, right? That's a survival mechanism. You can think of uncertainty functioning the same way. If we don't know the answer to something, if we don't know something, our brain rumbles like our stomach and says, go get information because information is food for our brain. So in this sense, Information, getting information, and that urge to get information based on uncertainty is helpful. Yet, if you think of it this way, so when we when we things are so uncertain and we can't handle uncertainty, we move from basically into our panic zone, right? So our brains, when things are certain, we're in our safe zone, and we just know we don't have to put up our guard because there's no danger. It's like you're being in the cave, right? We're in the cave, no saber tooth tiger in the cave, we can sleep. You know, we're calm. We go out of the cave. We don't know if there's a saber-toothed tiger. So we go on high alert. If we can't tolerate uncertainty, and there's actually a scientific term called uh, intolerance of uncertainty. If we can't tolerate that, we move into our panic zone and we freak out and we run back into the cave and we basically starve because we we can't handle how uncertain it is. Yeah, it's if we can tolerate uncertainty, we can move, instead of moving from the panic zone, we can move into our growth zone. You know, I love this term that Carol Dweck coined boy, decades and decades ago. This is around the educational space, but I think this applies here too. If we're, she, she talks about fixed versus growth mindset. If we're in fixed mindset, we think this is the way it is, you know, and anything different than this isn't, you know, isn't, isn't the way it is. So we can't learn. But she suggested, well, we can move into our growth zone. And I think of it as opening to our experience, right? That helps us learn and grow. And Mm -hmm. if there's something uncertain, instead of going, oh, no, we go, oh, we open up to it. And this is Mm -hmm. where I think this is where the mindfulness principles work beautifully. It's that it's that curiosity. You know, if you think of it as, you know, the second factor of awakening, you know, um, investigation. You can liberally translate that as curiosity. We're investigating experience to see what is true, to see what is real. That helps us survive.
1: Mm. So the other way of dealing with uncertainty is kind of negativity, or you know, you talk about cynicism. Like, wh- why is cynicism so comforting? Like, it's <laughs> it's an oddly comforting way of dealing with uncertainty.
0: Yeah. Well, I it. One of the pieces that could contribute that to that is just that, well, two, I would say. One is reification of self, where we're like, oh, yeah, I said something, you know, I'm cynical, so I'm right, and that just feels good to reify the self. And part of that is just the comfort zone of, you know, like, when we're cynical and we get used to being cynical. Probably the first time we were ever cynical, it felt a little strange because it was unusual. This is with anything, anything new. But once we get used to it, we try that sweater on. And we're like, yeah, that fits. Oh, yeah. I'm a cynical dude. And somebody's like, yeah, you're a cynical dude. And I'm like, yeah, I'm cynical, aren't I? And, like, you know, and, it's, and then we just start identifying with it. That gets mm-hmm. reified. And then that starts to get etched in our bones. And then it just it's that comfort of, oh, yeah, I'm a cynical guy that feels it feels good. Not that it's a helpful thing; it's just a comfortable thing.
1: So, in your in your first book, I mean, I I generally love people who try to link, you know, mindfulness in a really deep way and and Buddhist or Buddhist teachings. Which I know a lot of your work is stealth Buddhism, but but you you know you you actually do in your for for a Western psychiatrist in a you know academic and clinical setting. You actually talk about dharma i would say a fair amount in, in your writings and teaching so your first book the craving mind was that your first or is that just the first one i read yeah, yeah yeah i didn't want to get that wrong great book and you and you talk about addiction and and sort of theoretically you're linking some of the buddhist teachings on karma with behavioral psychology bf skinner and and mo- the, most of the sort of Source investigation for that work is is um, research and working with people with addiction and and cigarette addiction is is mainly what you worked with. So how did you think to link West and East in this way or how did that develop?
0: Well, if I remember correctly, I'd really been struggling with the teachings of dependent origination myself. Mm -hmm. And I was I have a friend, Jake Davis, who's a poly scholar, and we would just get together and, and geek out about, you know, about the teachings. And at the time, I was getting more and more into really trying to understand the mechanisms of addiction and habit formation. And so was really getting into these, you know, the basically the positive and negative reinforcement pieces that drive all addictions. And so clinically, it was really important for me to understand these mechanisms. From a research standpoint, it was important to understand them so that I could study them And it just blew me away how similar like the the dependent origination and operant conditioning were to the point where Jake and I actually wrote a paper in an academic paper that we got published showing that these were basically the same thing. Uh, Just slightly updated, I shouldn't say updated, but different terminology in, in operant conditioning, but basically all the same thing. So the way we saw this was You know, in in dependent origination, this is what the Buddha was supposedly contemplating on the night of his enlightenment. So I think of it as, well, if you're going to pay attention to anything, what was so important about that, right? That's a Mm. good place to start. Mm. And as I started looking at it, it started to make sense. Like things started to come into view. It wasn't just about memorizing 12 links of this and that. It was about, well, what's actually fueling this process? And even you know, the fuel, if you look at, I don't know how to pronounce the word, but Upadana, I don't know Mm -hmm. the proper pronunciation. I guess who does because it's a dead language, but the- (laughs) That's how I pronounce
1: that word too. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So however you pronounce Upadana, you know, there are these translations. I had first learned the translation is clinging, but then I saw some other translations around fuel, where it can be fuel for the fire. Mm -hmm. And I started seeing this in my research where my patients, well, and also my clinic, my patients who were smoking, it was the cigarettes that were actually fueling more craving, so they were feeding back around mm-hmm. to have them crave more and so here you know I, I was seeing this clinically, I was seeing this in my research, and then of course, when I worked with Jake, we started to link this up uh, you know with the with the textual uh, interpretations. And the you know it basically came very clear that the Buddha had figured out operant conditioning before right. paper had ever been invented.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: So it was just an obvious link when we saw it. You know, it was just like, oh, this, this, they're the same thing.
1: Right, right, right. So in the in those, te- I I also wrote a chapter on uh, karma and used the twelve links of dependent injury uh origination or nidanas in in the road home and people often say this actually i mean i think it's actually probably one of the most important teachings in all of buddhism because it shows you how mindfulness actually um creates some kind of gap or some kind of possibility to shift uh a karmic cycle and so you know looking at karma as habit formations you know kind of shifts this into really really the exact same territory that that you're talking about you could bring in the notion of a more mystical view of multiple lifetimes so we can we can leave that out and just talk about like the, the next day or the next moment rather than the next lifetime
0: right but you can actually think of the next moment as the next lifetime mm. so i think there's a pragmatic way of looking at that as well looking at that as well and and yes we can leave the other you know Great, you know, if somebody wants to, great, they can think of it in terms of multiple, like human lifetimes. But if they want to think of it just pragmatically, the two are very compatible. Where if you look at, you know, I'm born into the next moment, mm-hmm. and what makes the, you know, what's, you know, you think of it as what's the greatest predictor of future behavior? It's past behavior, mm-hmm. and so that's that's basically what habit is, and you can think of it self as a habit in that way. So we can think of it as a momentary, an hourly. A daily, a yearly, a lifetime thing, they're all compatible. It's just a matter of what time scale you're looking at.
1: So so you kind of distilled this uh, uh, into three that form a habit loop. So so just can you for the for people listening, like what are the three elements of the habit loop?
0: Yes. So it's relative. I think of these as the three essential elements. And this was actually influenced a lot by a a great book by Charles Duhigg called The Power of Habit, where I think he had four or something. But if you look at operant conditioning, really, all you need is a trigger, a behavior and a result. So if you look back at B.F. Skinner's work, if you look at Edward Thorndike's work from the 1800s, that's really where it comes from. So if you think of it from a survival standpoint, I like to think of it this way. You know, our, we had our ancient ancestors, they're in the cave, they got to find food food sources, and they have to remember where those are so they can go back the next day. So they're out on the Savannah foraging. And if they see food, there's the trigger, they eat the food, there's the behavior. And then the reward is a neuroscience term, you think of it as their stomach sends this dopamine signal to their brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So you can think of it as reward. From a pragmatic standpoint, I think of it as the result. What's the result of the behavior? Because if the result of the behavior is rewarding, oh, you know, calories, then we'll do it again. If the result is unrewarding, then we're not gonna do it. But the reward can come in two flavors. So if you think of craving and aversion, if, it's, if there's something pleasant, we crave to do more of it. If there's something unpleasant and we make the unpleasant go away, we crave to do less of it. That's the negative reinforcement side of things. So it covers both the positive and negative reinforcement are both encompassed within the same thing. Both of them lead to, you know, think of a, a craving, but the craving just has two different valences, craving versus ver, aversion
1: um that's great yeah i i would think the, the only thing i would add in if, to distill the 12 nidanas is, is i mean it's sort of in the loop but looping back to trigger from trigger to behavior to reward and then looping back to trigger is that you could just define a moment in there there's the the second nidana is samskara which is called karmic formation and that's where some seed for a future reaction to a future present moment comes in. So, you know, if you wanted to drop, pull that out, um, you know, it's also important, none of these things actually exist. They're just models for understanding our experience.
0: And they're helpful models, right? And I like that, that piece that you add in because I think of that, so in modern scientific terms, I would call that subjective bias, mm-hmm. where, you know, if you think of the first link as ignorance. So there's this, and maybe I'm not exactly, under, You know, tell, correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but the idea is we're seeing the world in a certain way through, through these lenses of ignorance. And each time we do something that is reinforcing, it actually supports that ignorance. It makes us see things through that, those glasses. So for example, if we eat chocolate when we're stressed out, we learn to see the world through, oh, if I'm stressed, I should eat chocolate glasses. Mm-hmm. And every time we eat chocolate, when we're stressed, we actually make those glasses thicker and thicker to the point where we can't, we don't even notice that we're wearing those glasses because we're mm-hmm. so used to them. That's the formation of self, right? Mm-hmm. And and so in that sense, that that perpetuates the ignorance. Well, I don't know. I think I you, you might, yeah. I'll stop because you might be saying something slightly different that that, um, that way of seeing the world it it uh, how would i put it it biases everything that we do or it can bias if we don't see that we're wearing those glasses
1: right no that's that's ignorance is the is the first of the of the uh you know, uh, first in the, in the new chain, in the new cycle of a karmic cycle. And then it leads to out of that, there's a, there's a habit formation, which creates a, a setup for how we come into contact and then experience the present moment. So it's, it's the exact same. It's just whether you have the three the four or the 12, you know, how, how many of them you, you label and, and feel like drawing out. So, so what makes a uh, habit loop where anxiety is either, you know, underlying or is more acute or, or cron- what makes that habit? Is there something special about that compared to like some other minor addictive behavior? You know, like, how many likes did I get, you know, on my Instagram post or, or whatever?
0: Well, there, there are shared elements, but there's one unique element. And this isn't something that I had learned in residency or medical school or anywhere. It, it only came forward when i <laughs> i guess this prompts a lot of things when i was suffering <laughs> i was struggling to help my patients with anxiety because with medications it's there's this term called number needed to treat how many patients you need to treat with a certain treatment before one person shows the significant mm. benefit it gives us a quick and dirty of how well it, how good a treatment is so with medications that number needed to treat is 5.15 so basically I have to treat over five patients before one of them shows a significant benefit. So that's I, pretty,
1: sc- I saw that in the book. That's pretty scary <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> that yeah. 80% of people who get medication for anxiety, it's, it's not working.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I was playing the medication lottery and not mm. knowing which was going to be the winning ticket. And then what about all of my patients that lost? <laughs> what was I going to do with them? <laughs> So I was doing some research with this app called Eat Right Now that was helping people with emotional eating. And some of them were saying, hey, you know, anxiety is the primary trigger for me to stress eat. Could you develop a program for that? So that's when I went back and looked at the literature and it turns out, uh, ironically, or ironically. That back in the 1980s, so this is back when the benzos were being, uh, benzodiazepines were being prescribed like candy, you know, even the stones uh, were singing about mother's little helper, right? Mm. So, so uh, and, and in the 80s was also when the SSRIs first came out. So Prozac was first developed in the 80s. So everybody's eyes were on medications, yet there were folks like Thomas Borkovec at Penn State and others who were suggesting that anxiety could actually be driven like a habit. And so when I was looking in the literature to see what I could possibly do to help my patients and also research this, that came to light. And I was thinking, oh, my goodness, I never thought about this. You know, I know how to work with habits. I've been studying this and developing programs for habit change for a long time, but I never thought about anxiety as a habit. So this unique component here is that the feeling of anxiety, that feeling of worry can actually drive that mental behavior of worry. So often people think of a behavior as like eating something or smoking or drinking or whatever, but that actually can be mental, right? We can be Mm -hmm. thinking and that can be a behavior, which can be very detrimental because the worry can do a couple of things. One is it feels like it distracts us from a worse feeling, feeling of fear, anxiety, or it can make us feel like we're in control, which is which is a total false sense of security. <laughs> because, you know, any parent that's, you know, that's kid is out, you know, partying with their friends at night and wor- they're worrying about their kid, I can promise you the level of their worry is not related to how safe their kid is gonna be. And it has mm-hmm. nothing to do with it. But it makes the parent feel like they're doing something. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. at least I'm worrying. So I'm doing something. I'm being a good parent by worrying. No, you're probably. You're, you're, you know, it's not helpful. Let's just put it that way. So, in terms of anxiety, it can actually be driven through the mental behavior of worry. And that's that key aspect of anxiety. That's what prompted me to write this whole book was that, you know, we're approaching anxiety, currently approaching anxiety through a couple of ways. One is medications, which we already talked about how well that works. But also through this heuristic of the um, willpower, you know, we we have this Western willpower mentality of, you know, if you want to lose weight, just, you know, eat salad instead of cake. Well, you know, that doesn't work so well. Obesity has actually been on the rise, despite knowing that we need to make sure we eat fewer calories uh, than we burn off. There's actually a skit from the 1970s, Bob Newhart, where he had this skit about where it's just stop it, where this woman comes into a therapist's office and, you know, she says, I have this problem. And he basically, they go back and forth and he just says, just stop it, you know, just stop it, just stop it. That's the mentality that we're using from a psychological perspective. You know, it's like, oh, just distract yourself or just, you know, what what are we going to do? Just tell ourselves to stop worrying. So that's the other piece
1: here where I was really looking for a different way to approach this mm. so so tell me about the 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 methodology that you developed, the app that you developed and and what what is the the work of mindfulness uh, that that um, is better than better than medication so here,
0: as a researcher, I had to first kind of map out the kind of what the theoretical mechanism was, and so this is based on the work from the 80s, is looking at the basic premise that anxiety could be driven like a habit. And so if that premise is the case, we could develop a program that we could then test, because as a researcher, I want to make sure I want to test and see if something works. Uh, so we, we set it up as a three-step process. And I actually wrote the book to kind of follow this three-step process as well. So somebody could read the book or they could they could use the app or they could just kind of listen to your podcast and, and maybe get some of the basic elements. But the first element is that they need to see how their mind works. They need to map out these habit loops themselves. And so I'll say that awareness actually underlies all three steps. So basically, if people don't remember anything else, they just have to remember to be aware and to be curious. And I'll I'll see talk about how this works. So We've got to be aware that we're caught up in a habit loop related to anxiety and we can just map it out using those three elements. What's the trigger? What's the behavior? Is it worrying? Is it procrastinating? Is it stressing? Is it drinking? Is it, what are we doing to work with the anxiety? And then what's the result of that? And actually the trigger is the least important part of the equation. Hmm. The reason that it is, is that behavior is driven. This is karma. Behavior is driven by cause and effect. So, behavior leads to an effect. If the effect is rewarding, we're going to keep doing it. If it's not rewarding, we're going to stop. So that, you know, the trigger is just there to kind of start the process going, but the trigger is not actually that important. And I mentioned this specifically because a lot of people try to identify the trigger and then try to fix it or avoid it. That's just a dead end. I actually wrote a whole bit in the book about that because I see that so often. So first step is, is mapping out the habit. loop. What's the trigger? What's the behavior? What's the result? The second step is really a key step here, which is about uh, really understanding how our brains work, which is that, you know, if it's not based on behavior, what does this cause and effect relationship actually mean? And what it means is that our brains are going to keep doing things if they're rewarding. They're going to stop doing them if they're not rewarding. And this actually goes back to the, some of my favorite Buddhist teachings, which is, you know, I'll summarize the sutras where the Buddha talks about exploring gratification to its end. Right. it's not until I explore gratification to its end that knowledge and vision arose. So he talks about getting enlightened based on exploring gratification to its end. Well, that's a head scratcher until you look at how that lines up with the reward centers in the brain. Our brains are going to keep doing things if they're habitual or if they're rewarding. So if we pay attention, bring awareness and basically ask, how rewarding is this? We're going to start to become disenchanted with our old behaviors. So if we're worrying and we see that it's not keeping our family safe. It's not solving a problem. It's doing not doing whatever we thought it was supposed to be doing. We become disenchanted with it. If we stop, if we see that overeating isn't actually making us happy, you know, the hungry ghost—we're just hungrier and hungrier. Then we start to become disenchanted with it. So my lab actually studied this. We could actually map out reward value change. Uh, we did this with our Eat Right Now app. It only takes 10 to 15 times of somebody really paying attention to see this reward value drop below zero, meaning that they'll change behavior. So that's the second step is basically becoming disenchanted with the old behavior. Mm. The third step, oh, and I should say, all you need for that is awareness. Oh, what am I getting from this, right? Paying attention, you know, when we're eating, is this next bite as good as the last one? You know, mm-hmm. is, is the worrying actually solving anything? The third step, I call this the BBO, finding the bigger, better offer. So if we're seeing that worrying isn't that rewarding, we can actually start to our brain's gonna say, Well, give me something better. And this is where I love awareness. That that attitudinal quality of curiosity feels better than being anxious. Mm-hmm. So if we can train ourselves to simply start to be curious about body sensations when we're getting anxious. Instead of getting caught up in that anxiety habit loop, feeling anxious, starting to worry about why we're anxious, we replace that worry with curiosity, like, oh, here's a physical sensation. What does this feel like? Then that actually feels better and helps us step out of the old habit loop. Uh, I'll give a personal example. I used to get panic attacks during residency training training. I was doing a bunch of noting practice, this Mahasi-style noting practice at the time. So I'd wake up in the middle of the night with a full-blown panic attack, and I would just note, oh, feel like I'm going to die. Oh, can't breathe. Oh, my heart is racing. Oh, oh. And then, because and I was in residency, I'd go through the DSM checklist, you know, this, this, uh, the psychiatrist Bible, basically, and be like, check, 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 check. Oh, I just had a panic attack. And then probably because I was sleep-deprived, I'd just go right back to sleep, so there's an example of how we can bring curiosity in, not take this stuff personally and sure, have a panic attack. It's not pleasant, but not have that drive, you know, bleed over into full-blown panic disorder because I'm not worried about having the next panic attack because I see it clearly. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was a panic attack. Okay, that happens, you know, not like not a big deal because they can they mm-hmm. can suck, but I wasn't worried. Oh, when am I going to have the next one? And so yeah. just to, just to put a pin on this, Hmm. we studied this we developed this Unwinding Anxiety app and we did a couple of clinical studies so one we got a 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores in anxious physicians Mm -hmm. we got a 67% reduction in people with generalized anxiety disorder and here we can calculate that number needed to treat so with medication 5.15 in this study so with mindfulness training 1.6 so so yeah if an app could do a mic drop that app would we'll do that mic drop right now.
1: One point six. This is the unwinding anxiety app. Just letting everyone know, same name as the book. Um, uh, Haven't checked out the app. The book is super readable, though. It's it's like, it, yeah, you do a really good job of being funny and and uh, delivering like dry information at the same time, and and good, <laughs> really good storytelling, which is not easy to do in nonfiction. I find it's really not easy to do it all but you do a great job of it
0: I appreciate
1: um, that you you just my my wife um,
0: like you funny really so I really appreciate that
1: <laughs> yeah glad,
0: glad that comes through
1: I mean not like stand-up comic funny yeah. but you know it's a, that's not what you're trying to do so it'd be it'd be bad if you were a stand-up comic um but um uh so my question uh you know is you know awareness is key but it, Something I noticed in uh, meditation, something I noticed, uh, you know, working with so many different students and working with myself, awareness is painful. And so that's also what I'm wondering is there has to be some kind of underlying view of self that is not aggressive, you know, like because you you the cake is there, you know, you watch yourself go through a certain number of iterations where you still do the behavior you know, have this diminishing reward experience. There's some level of kind of self watching the self destructive behavior or the selfless, whatever we want to call that. And you kind of have to deal with the pain of awareness. And I just wonder, like, is there, do you have to work with some building of, you know, self esteem or, you know, basic goodness or unconditional positive regard? How does that relate to this behavioral model?
0: Just to be clear, the awareness itself or the awareness of what's happening is painful, just
1: to be clear. Yeah. The, the, the What is arising in awareness when you watch yourself eat the cake or, in my example, like wake up in the middle of the night being like, oh, gosh, like I'm anxious about what I did today or I'm hanging out with my daughter and on my phone and trying to convince myself that's because I need to stay in communication with people for work, but she can see I'm not really present. So I'm like, I'm a bad Buddhist practitioner and teacher, but I have to watch this smartphone cycle move through a few more thousand times before it shifts.
0: Yeah, so I think there are two elements there. One is, as you talk about unconditional positive self-regard, we can look to see what it feels like when we judge ourselves, okay? Mm When we judge ourselves, does it feel closed? Does it feel contracted? The answer is yes. And anybody that pays it, you know, but we can all explore that from our own experience. When we're closed down, we're more in fixed mindset. We can't learn. So if we can cultivate that unconditional positive regard or kindness toward ourselves, right, where we don't beat ourselves up or simply bring in curiosity, all of those help us literally feel more open and expanded and that open and expanded quality is a marker of growth mindset where we're willing to and and open literally open to learning so here i think that's really helpful if we're you know just like asking you know when we were all teenagers asking our parents for the keys to the car We didn't ask our parents when they were in a bad mood or when they were hungry, right? Because they were closed down. We wait for them to be smiling, you know, like relaxing at the end of the day. Oh, by the way, this weekend, can I borrow? Sure, you know, they're in growth mindset uh, when we're asking for the keys then. So I think we can do the same thing for ourselves is, you know, those really help us open up to to being able to learn. The other piece there is we can just look at self-judgment as a habit loop and see how much it's getting in the way of us Mm -hmm. learning. The other piece that I would add to that is, you know, and sometimes I'll ask my students or my patients, I'll say, you, would you, you know, when they're like, Oh man, I didn't notice how, you know, how crazy my mind is or how, you know, whatever. And I say, you know, would you rather know this now or in 10 years when you've, when you have uh, continued that habit loop and reified it, you know, a hundred thousand more times. Hmm. And so, Boy, everybody says, oh, you know, I'd much rather know now, right? So it's it's a little painful now, but it's a lot more painful if we have spun that wheel a gazillion more times. Mm, mm. And that's helpful, you know, for people. It's like, okay, it's painful now, but mm. I'm learning. And the other, oh, so I'll add one more piece, which is it feels good to learn. Mm. So even mapping out a habit loop and starting to do that process starts
1: to build the momentum because it feels good. Mm-hmm. So I want to go back because, you know, the more I think about the the difference in the number needed to treat, right, which is NNT, which is not the same thing as an NFT which is a whole nother conversation. <laughs> yes. <Let's be> clear. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, those numbers are like startling and you just say like anxiety is so prevalent in our society now, like that you're like, let's just get everybody doing mindfulness as a way to like kind of save save the, you know, and so many privileged people, so many people with power experience this, like that would really, you know, change the world to get everybody working with like similar practices. So what are the... I mean, I can think of one political barrier is like a pharmaceutical company does not want to hear what you just said, you know. Well, ultimate. So if, if they're on, if they're in
0: fixed mindset where they say, OK, we have to make a medication and make money off of it. Right. So companies, corporations, main jobs are to maximize profits for their shareholders. So. And it's interesting to—I remember watching a documentary called, I think it was called *The Corporation*, where corp- mm. it, it was way way back when all the companies were generally dad and sons. It would be great if there were mothers and sons and daughters as well. Where people took personal responsibility for what they did, but when you know it became a corporation, they could just forget all that and use the uh, excuse of "oh, gotta maximize profits" to like basically decimate the planet and hurt each other in the process. Mm. So here. <laughs> You know, wouldn't it be great, you know, if we come back to this question, and we really sit with this around, you know, can we just you know, use mindfulness to save the planet, we can really look at this, you know, take the pharmaceutical perspective again, they're looking, if they're going to, they're looking for whatever's going to work best, okay? So, you know, there aren't any, as far as I'm aware, there are not any new anxiolytic medications in the pipeline like forget it on the market but even in the pipeline because pharma has done hasn't done a great job of finding well let's just say the brain is complex and you can't just target one neurotransmitter and expect it to help everybody right mm-hmm. it's it's going to help some people to some degree that's where this you know 20% of people and i still prescribe these things you know right of it, it can be very helpful for some people but it's not just a blanket cure so here if we can find something targeted and it's going to help a lot of people and pharma can find some way to make money off of it. They're going to be very, very happy with that. So you might say, well, farmers not going to be so happy with awareness because you can't patent awareness. And I think that's a <laughs> that's a fair
1: assessment. People are trying, though, but you can't. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, But here they will start to work and we're starting to see this more and more. They'll, you know. They'll start to work with digital therapeutic companies where, th- whatever the company is doing. So, for example, our unwinding anxiety app—it's helpful for people, and so this is where pharma will start to look and say, "Oh, how can we pair th- with these things, or how can we work with, with folks like this?" Because they're ultimately, you know, they're ultimately in the game of, in theory, improving health.
1: Mm. So, I guess one last question, because um, it's it's so great to have your perspective on all these things on the other side of, of this conversation is I definitely encounter a lot of Dharma students, a lot of meditators who are on or need medication or are trying to get off their medication and kind of have self judgment around using medication like that, that's some sort of crutch. So what would you say to those, those people that yeah. when medication is useful or helpful?
0: Yeah. So one thing I say to my patients uh, who are struggling with this, because this is something that I see as a, as a prescriber and also as a, as a meditation teacher. So in, in two different, in two different arenas, one is, you know, if uh, you know, our brains need vitamins, for example, you know, we, we need vitamin B12 to survive. Well, do we feel guilty about trying to get vitamin B12 in our diets? No, it's actually pretty helpful. You know, we need insulin, you know, and so, there are there are aspects of that are just of life that are needed right we need water we need calories and so I encourage folks to approach it from that perspective of you know sometimes just based on somebody not winning the genetic lottery where their brain might have a little bit less uh, you know made do you know do the serotonin system less efficiently than other people well should they feel guilty about how they were born no because that's you know they have no control over that. So if they need a brain vitamin, that's going to help. And ultimately, this is about decreasing suffering, if it helps decrease their suffering, you know, what's the problem? Now, I can say that, you know, and it it doesn't magically alleviate the guilt, but I think it can help people start to ponder, what is it that's leading me to feel guilty? Could that even be a habit loop where they're just, you know, they've, they've gotten stuck in it, where they, You know they they have expectations that they want to be off medications or whatever, and they can explore those and see them clearly and start to map those out, and then you know not be not be as as much under control of those habits driving them, uh, where they can they can drive the habit. The other thing I'll say is, you know sometimes and for some people I'll do what I call a cross titration, where somebody's been on medication for a long time, as they build up their mental skills. For some people, I might be able to decrease their medication. Again, you know, somebody has to do this with their healthcare provider and et cetera, et cetera. But as we ramp these things up, as we we understand how our minds work better, we're going to be able, we're going to be better at working with our minds. And that's going to help us deal with stuff like the feelings of anxiety. And so in some cases, it can be helpful to do that cross titration, We ramp up the mental skills and, and possibly ramp down their medications.
1: Awesome. Well, this has been a really wonderful uh, conversation and uh, just want to give a shout out to the various ways that you all can find Dr. Judd, Judson Brewer. Uh, Drjudd.com is his website. That's D-R-J-U-D, one D.com. Both of his books, the first one, The Craving Mind and the new one, which I think I'm going to recommend to a bunch of people, Unwinding Anxiety are out and the Unwinding Anxiety app is is, uh, downloadable, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, please come back on the the Road Home podcast anytime. It's really, it's really great to talk to you and, and hear your wisdom and expertise. I'd love to. This has been really enjoyable. All right. So uh, thank you, everyone. And uh, until next time, this is uh, Ethan Nickturn for the Road Home podcast. Take care.